six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. Good afternoon and welcome to a public affair. My name is Nate Carlin and I'll be your host this hour. I'm filling in for SD Denner, who will be back next week. Today we'll be discussing the recent Supreme Court decision, West Virginia v. EPA, where the Supreme Court struck down some of the EPA's attempted regulation to address climate change. Our second guest will be Steph Tai, an environmental law professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. But first, we'll talk with Lisa Song. Lisa is an environment and energy reporter at ProPublica, where she has reported on topics such as oil companies shift from climate change research to climate denial, and on air pollution caused by the Texas oil boom. Recently, she has been reporting on the impacts of air pollution and the difficulties of air pollution monitoring. Hello, Lisa. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start pretty zoomed out here. Uh, can you just tell me what is West Virginia v. EPA and why does it matter? Uh, so it was a lawsuit about challenging the EPA's attempts to regulate coal-fired power plants in this country. And the goal was um, way back in the Obama administration, there was the clean power plan to try and get more uh, coal-fired power plants to switch to cleaner forms of electricity that would um, uh, emit fewer greenhouse gases. So when you say cleaner forms of electricity, does that mean that they're mostly focused on air pollution here or on uh, climate change? So the intent of the regulation was all about climate change. It was all focused on reducing greenhouse gases from uh, the electricity sector. And the way the original rule was written, it would have uh, required a lot of power plants to shift to using things like wind or solar power or natural gas and away from coal. And so why, why did the Supreme Court say that was a problem? Uh, so what this decision basically means is the court is saying this is a really big, important issue, and this regulation would have sweeping consequences for the country, and the EPA does not have the ability to regulate greenhouse gases in this particular way because Congress has not given it the authority to do so. I mean, is, is that true? This is from 2015. Was, was it a, a sweeping regulation that changed the energy industry? So back in 2015, it was a big deal from the Obama administration. The interesting thing is that the uh, clean power plan itself has had a very convoluted history. And, you know, at one point it was stayed by the Supreme Court and then the Trump administration came into power and they proposed a, a different plan. Uh, the, the The bottom line here is that between when the clean power plan was proposed and now, we've basically already achieved the goals of the original clean power plan, not through EPA regulation, but just through market forces. Um, a lot of power plants have just, due to economic forces, have already switched to uh, natural gas or solar or wind. So the kind of nitty gritty of the original clean power plan isn't even that relevant anymore. Now, can you talk a little bit about why we've rolled off coal as, as a power um, source? Uh, some of it is, a lot of it is just due to um, that uh, solar and wind have just become cheaper. It's just become easier for power plants to switch to those forms of electricity. Um, we've also just had a long natural gas boom and a lot of cheap natural gas for many years in this country. Um, so, so again, a lot of it is just is just regular uh, economic reasons. So, when the EPA uh, monitors these uh, power plants, what what kind of things is it looking for? What's uh... What what are its current goals with, with monitoring air? So uh, I don't, I'm not sure what the EPA is going to do going forward with these coal-fired power plants, but there are a lot of other parts of our economy that EPA could be regulating in terms of greenhouse gases, right? They could be looking at rules on uh, things like cement plants and certain types of manufacturing, um, maybe uh, refineries, for example. And so one of the questions is going to be, if the EPA starts regulating greenhouse gases from those sources, is it going to have to 
shift its strategy because of what this Supreme Court decision says. Yeah, is, is there a sense that this is going to have effects on other EPA regulations besides the Clean Power Plan? Yes, uh, very much so. I, I think experts say that it has now just created this uncertainty in terms of future proposed regulation, not not just from EPA, but also from other federal agencies. Mm, yeah. Um, so when the EPA uh, looks at something like emissions, they, they seem to have two sort of ways of, of talking about it from the pollution side and from the climate change side. Can you talk about where the EPA spends most of its time uh, regulating? I, I don't have I don't know exactly what it does more or less of exactly, but it, it is true that yes, you have um, certain greenhouse gases like CO2, like methane, that are going to be the focus of uh, climate regulations from EPA. And then separately, you have things like benzene um, uh, or toluene or other kind of uh, what are called hazardous air pollutants, which are more a concern in terms of things like cancer risk. Um, or, uh, you, you know, heart disease, asthma, that kind of thing. Uh, and so my publication, ProPublica, we spent more than a year doing some extensive reporting on flaws with how EPA regulates those hazardous air pollutants. Now, can, can you talk a little bit more about that? Where, where, do, you, where do you see the, the uh, cracks in the, the regulations, the loopholes or whatnot? Yeah, so with those hazardous air pollutants, one of the problems is just that there's the EPA basically looks at those emissions from uh, factories and other pollution sources one source at a time. So if you live in a community where you might have a refinery on one street and then across the street might be a chemical plant, the EPA doesn't really uh, look at the combined effects of the pollution coming from both of those things. And so that creates a problem where, you know, we we found using EPA data, there were all these pockets in the country where people were being exposed to um, unacceptable cancer risks. And uh, the reason is because of the EPA's inability to really look at the pollution and its effects in a more integrated way. Yeah, one thing that comes up a lot in your reporting is this idea of air monitoring. Uh, can you talk to me a little bit about what is air monitoring? What goes into it? Stuff like that. Yeah, air monitoring is basically uh, installing some kind of scientific instrument. Um, you know, they oftentimes will look like a, a metal cylinder canister. And what these air monitors do is they are either measuring the air or collecting air. And then later uh, you analyze it in a lab to see the concentrations of certain pollutants. So air monitoring for things like benzene and other hazardous pollutants can be a, a difficult and expensive job. And what we found was there's really just not a lot of air monitoring happening around the country. So a lot of these communities that live next to huge polluters have no idea what levels of hazardous air pollution they're breathing in every day. And really, we don't have EPA regulations that require regular air monitoring of these pollutants. Yeah. How does the EPA decide where to install air monitors? Is it sort of by request, by possible polluter uh it's a little bit <laughs> it's a little hard to explain but basically the epa has a very small network of national air monitors for these pollutants and then sometimes state or epa regulators will also install additional monitors often in places where local residents have been up in arms about it um, one of the things we found is there's a lot of communities with very active um, concerned community groups and, and local advocacy groups. And sometimes if they make enough of a fuss, they can get the state regulators or the EPA to install a monitor in their community. Um, there are certain types of polluters like refineries where they are required to have benzene monitors around the um, boundaries of their facility. So we can get a little bit of data from those monitors as well. So, so is it like kind of a, a national network? Is there like, a, is it is there a good chance that there's an air monitor near me, or is it sort of spread out? Uh, yeah, probably not. You probably won't find one near you. Um, that there, there is a national database where 
you can see um, air monitoring data that's collected by a bunch of federal and state agencies. Um, but there's also going to be other monitors around that don't show up in that database. I would say that a lot of these monitors are clustered in places with a lot of industrial activity, um, you know, in certain places in Texas and Louisiana, uh, what we call colloquially, what is called colloquially cancer alley, because there are just so many chemical facilities there, you, you will tend to see um, more monitors. But there are also plenty of places with a ton of air pollution where um, there are no uh, regular air monitors in place, and the people generally have no idea what they're being exposed to. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm Nate Carlin, and today I'm talking with ProPublica reporter Lisa Song about the recent Supreme Court ruling limiting the regulatory power of the EPA. You can join the conversation by giving us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. Again, that number is 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also reach out via the A Public Affair page on Facebook or on Twitter at at Wart Talk. So, Lisa, we've talked about air monitoring, but I know that your reporting also de- deals with problems of uh, EPA enforcement. Can you talk me through, like, when, an, when there is an EPA regulation, how do they choose who to enforce that regulation on? Oh, gosh, that's, that's difficult. Um, it's sometimes a a mystery. Um, One of the things we found in our reporting is that there are, it can be very hard to issue uh, large fines against polluters. And um, one of the stories we wrote showed uh, this, this city called Calvert City, Kentucky, had a uh, major polluter there that just had years and years of environmental air uh, violations. And they've been cited repeatedly by the EPA and um, the state regulators. And they'll get, you know, fines of a few thousand dollars here or there, maybe $100,000, $200,000. But all of those repeated fines and citations aren't actually changing um, how it behaves. And so you have for decades we actually have data showing really bad, some really bad air pollution levels in the community. And so it appears there that all of the enforcement the EPA is doing is really not very effective at reining in the pollution. Why is that? When you hear like $100,000, $200,000 fines, I mean, that, that sounds like the kind of thing that would make you want to change your behavior. Is that just not enough money? <laughs> Well, in this particular case, the uh, polluter is a is a large international company, and you know they they are earning billions of dollars a year. So for them, you know, a fine of even a million dollars is is a pretty small percentage of their overall profits. Is there a sense if if you're a repeat offender that the fines start ratcheting up, or do they sort of stay flat? Uh. I'm not sure about that. Um, the company we wrote about actually just got a million dollar fine, which is from the EPA um, for uh, it releasing excess air pollution. And that, to my knowledge, is the largest single fine they've gotten in decades. Um, so we'll have to see whether that, that leads to change. So it's sort of, it can ratchet up. Interesting. Yeah. Um, one of the things that kind of struck me about that story is how little like the how there was this data that the EPA had but the people who lived there didn't know about it and couldn't really like the the data didn't create action and that struck me as kind of you'd expect you'd hope that it would yeah that was that was really tragic because i had been used to reporting on communities where there was an active uh community concerns and you know people forming grassroots groups fighting uh, so hard just to get air monitoring in place. But here in Calvert City, what I found was, you know, it's a small company town, um, tons of people in the town and the surrounding county, they work at that chemical plant or nearby chemical plants. So their livelihoods depend on this industry. Um, And they actually were lucky in a sense because there had been a series of air monitors installed in town that had been operating for decades. And that's something many towns can only dream of. But somehow this data, even though it was showing really high levels of pollution, didn't really trigger 
much action or much change. And folks in the town were, were pretty reluctant to talk about the air pollution problem. Um, they didn't want to say anything that might, um, you know, critique the, the major employers in town. Now, can you talk about why that happened? Why is it sometimes that being the EPA being armed with the data doesn't lead to them showing up with the fines? You know, EPA, there's been a lot of criticism of, of EPA's lax enforcement and just generally them not having a lot of the enough resources to do adequate enforcement or oftentimes not enough political will. Um, uh, we, we've seen reports and studies on how enforcement action really plummeted during the Trump years in office. But even during, uh, you know, administrations that care more about the environment, what you often see is there might be an initial fine or or some you know new requirement for a polluter, but it's it's much harder to get the kind of sustained follow up to make sure that the promises a polluter makes are actually being implemented over time, that the EPA is staying on top of it. Um, I have spoken to a lot of environmental law experts who say they're they're frankly not surprised that things happen in such a kind of ad hoc way and and in a way where there's not a lot of sustained pressure to um, make sure the polluter is continuing to do all the things they're supposed to do and reduce pollution. Does a federal agency like the EPA struggle with uh, sort of administration whiplash? I imagine there's different administrations have pretty different goals for, for what they see the EPA doing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, if you have an administration that really values the environment and values um, enforcement, then that can really just uh, create a different atmosphere for the staff employees there in terms of what they feel like they can do in terms of feeling empowered. Um, and if you have an administration uh, that, you know, cares less about environmental enforcement and oftentimes um prefers to leave it up to the states, then you are going to have a more anemic response. Sure. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the EPA's relationship with the state EPAs? I know that there's been coordination issues with those uh, in the past. You know, I think it's, I think it very much depends state by state. Um, There are going to be states that, uh, defer more to the polluters and do less enforcement and then there are those that are that are opposite and i think you you can definitely see um i i've spoken to a lot of uh residents in states that have weaker environmental rules and they will often um complain about how hard it is to get the epa to come in as a kind of backstop to what the state agency, uh, you know, is is not willing to do. Um, it can it can definitely be difficult. Now, wh- why is that? Is, is DPA sort of they don't want to tread on other people's toes? They don't they don't they like to generate their own cases, not to p- take up other people's. Do you have a sense? I don't. I don't really know. Uh, you know, as a as a kind of general rule, but I have definitely heard that sometimes there's a sense of fear of of coming in and swooping in and taking over. Um, there's definitely some political sensitivities. Um, in in some of these states, the state attorneys general like to file lawsuits against the EPA. Um, that's just something that happens routinely in no matter what the EPA administration is or who is leading um, the EPA at the moment. So I'm sure all of that is very, very sensitive and confusing for them. So uh, zooming back out, uh, how do you think we're doing in handling air pollution? Um, are things getting better, getting worse, staying about the same? I think it depends on what kind of air pollution you're talking about and over what time periods. Um, you know, since the Clean Air Act was put in, there's definitely been a huge reduction in certain types of air pollution. Um, the particular kind of hazardous air pollutants we, we wrote about um, they, they've certainly uh, come down since um, uh, overall since the, the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments um, when, when the, the regulations for those pollutants were, were definitely beefed up. But you are still seeing these big pockets of toxic air around the country where communities are, are getting no relief from really high levels of hazardous pollutants. 
Um, after our stories were published, the EPA has pledged to uh, increase enforcement and do additional air monitoring of these types of pollutants. Uh, but those kind of changes are going to take a while. So we're still trying to track and see how, how they're doing over time and whether that kind of promise actually lasts. Do you get the sense that the EPA is, is looking to step up the, their monitoring, their enforcement, and just are, are waiting for the resources? Or are they sort of content with status quo? I mean, we've spoken to folks at the EPA who are very eager to do more on enforcement and to do more on air monitoring. Um, and some of the sort of immediate reforms they've put in since our story uh, ran um, has been related to things like requiring some additional air monitors near uh, a, a few major polluters and, and making more funding available for better air monitoring and more enforcement. Uh, it, it can be hard to tell because anything at EPA takes many years to happen. It's, mm. It tends to be a slow process. The $1 million fine I talked about a few minutes ago um, against that polluter in Kentucky was it, it came out of an EPA investigation from 2014. So the agency started investigating that polluter way back in 2014, and then it took them eight years to you know, come up with a consent agreement that was then um, negotiated with the company in collaboration with the U.S. Justice Department. So all of that bureaucracy and all of that, the, those lawyer, um, you know, conversations, it took them eight years to get anything out of it. And at the end of the day, those are eight years in which the residents were still subject to those excess pollution and emissions. Yeah, well, that is that is a long time. Um, can, can you give me a sense of how active is the EPA? How, how many fines is it levying in a year? Uh, oh, I don't, I don't have those kinds of numbers. Um, but there was a report out a number of years ago that did find generally the number of enforcement actions from the EPA are going down over time as a as a kind of you know decade long or or more than decade long trend. Um, and, uh, you know, that was, uh, spanning multiple administrations. Interesting. Is there a theory as to why that's happening? Just, I think it's a combination of everything from, from lack of adequate funding to, uh, sometimes po political higher up, um, you know, decisions on priorities. Um, but I, but I can't, I can't speak specifically. Sure. Well, thanks Lisa. Thanks so much for spending time with us today. If you're just tuning in, this is A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm Nate Carlin, and today we're talking about the recent Supreme Court decision handed down that limits the regulatory power of the EPA. You can join the conversation by giving us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. Again, that number is 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also reach out via the A Public Affair page on Facebook or on Twitter at at WORT Talk. Our next guest is Steph Tai. Steph is a law professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where they work on administrative and environmental law and the role science plays in informing law. They have helped file several amicus briefs with the Supreme Court around these types of issues. Steph, welcome to A Public Affair. Thanks for having me. So I kind of wanted to start uh, super zoomed out and just give me the the legal framework for federal regulations. Uh, how can something like the EPA, which is unelected, um, in pass, say, a regulation that people have to obey? That's a great question. So what we have is a limited system of federal government. And what that means is that Congress has to pass a statute in order to de delegate authority to any agency to regulate something. So for example, the FDA <clears throat> works under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, and that's how they can regulate both you know, pharmaceuticals and food safety. Um, and the EPA works under a number of different statutes. For example, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, um, and other types of environmental statutes. So they're delegated authority by Congress, but that delegated authority is often um, broad and discretionary. And you would understand why, right? Congress doesn't have the expertise to come up with all the fine tunings. They leave that up to the EPA. Um, and what that means in turn is that the EPA um, effectively operates under two different methods. One, it passes regulations. So these regulations are different regulations that give teeth to what was it was charged to do by Congress. And then two, it engages in enforcement actions like you talked with um, Lisa Sign just now. 
So when you say Congress delegates, do they just say, like, take care of all the environment? Uh, How specific does Congress have to get? They have to be somewhat specific. So, for example, adequate to protect um, human health and safety might be a language like that. But it can't be overly broad because otherwise that would violate what's called the non-delegation doctrine, which is that um, Congress just can't give free reign. Um, to an agency to do something that would be abandoning its own duties. And so instead, they have to give some limitations on what the agency can do. So uh, let's go back in time to 2007 to a different Supreme Court decision, uh, Massachusetts v. EPA. Uh, Can you walk me through that decision and why it's important now? Yeah, so that I should confess that I was involved in that. Um, I represented a number of prominent climate scientists just explaining the sort of climate science behind climate change. Um, And what that case was about was it was a case brought by a number of um, public interest organizations and states to to compel the EPA to try to regulate uh, emissions coming from motor vehicles because that leads to climate change. And um, what the EPA did initially was just sort of punt on this. They basically said, okay, we one, don't have the authority to do this. And to the extent we have any authority, we're just going to deal with this in a voluntary international negotiations kind of manner. And what the Supreme Court said was, no, the Clean Air Act does authorize um, the EPA to regulate um, greenhouse gas emissions coming from motor vehicles. It falls under the definition of pollutant. It falls under all of the tools put together by Congress to charge the EPA to regulate um, emissions coming from motor vehicles. So that was a go ahead um, for EPA to do so. And to the extent that the EPA made its initial decision under a flawed understanding of the Clean Air Act, it had to be bounced back to the EPA. So did then the EPA take off running? Did they start doing all sorts of things to to deal with climate change? It was interesting because that was still during uh, the Bush administration. Um, And so the Bush administration basically dawdled on that. They said, okay, fine, we'll take a look at it. Um, And then the administration changed around. In came the Obama administration, and they actually did do a number of things. They tightened um, some of the motor vehicle emissions kind of things. And they also did another thing, too, which the Bush administration had been rejecting. Um, The Clean Air Act was passed during a time when Um, much of the country did not have strong state regulations for air pollution, but California actually did. And because it was dealing with very specific issues like LA where the basin accumulates a lot of pollutants. And so as part of the compromise, um, what Congress said under the Clean Air Act is that if California applies um, to the EPA for what's called a waiver, um, they can depart from this and have an even more stringent regulation. Um, for air emissions coming from motor vehicles. In turn, all states have the ability to either follow the EPA baseline or the more stringent California baseline, as long as EPA grants that waiver. Um, Bush administration had held off on granting that waiver, um, but the Obama administration did grant that waiver. And so then we're left with more tightened stuff on the federal level and even more tightened stuff coming from the California level, which meant that states siding with California could feel free to adopt that more stringent regulation. And and states did that? (laughs) Yes, a number of states did that, mostly sort of um, New England, um, Northeast kind of states, because they were concerned about a lot of um, just general kind of emissions. So there were a number of states that did that. All right. So now, fast forward to now, Supreme Court hands down West Virginia v. EPA. Uh, Can you walk me through the legal logic in this case? Yeah. So this is really kind of complicated um, because it has a really long history, right? So um, it actually started under the Obama administration with what was called the Clean Power Plan. Um, They used a different provision of the Clean Air Act, not the motor vehicle stuff, but what's called the New Source Performance Standards Program. Um, which allows for the EPA to regulate certain pollutants coming from existing stationary sources. So this can include things like power plants. Um, Under that program, although the states actually set the enforceable rules for governing existing sources, such as power plants, um, EPA can determine the emissions limit with which they have to comply. And they can derive that limit by determining the quote unquote best system of emissions reduction um, that's been adequately demonstrated. And I read off that language from the Clean Air Act because as I mentioned, the clean EPA and all agencies can only do what's charged, what it's charged to do by Congress. Um, what the Obama EPA did with that language, that best systems of emission reduction, was they determined that system was a broad thing. And so system didn't mean, according to the Obama EPA, um, just a single power plant, but rather could include a whole system of electricity generation. 
So they had three different building blocks, one which was more limited to the plant. Um, so heat rate improvements, cold fire plants, which just made it more efficient. And then two and three were what were called generation shifting improvements to move the whole grid towards um, natural gas plants, which are more effective at generating electricity per amount of carbon emitted, and then also generation shifting improvements to wind and solar energy. And so they created a number of restrictions on coal-fired plants that would increase this generation shifting. That was when a number of states um, challenged the EPA on the basis that um, the Clean Air Act doesn't give the EPA the authority to do this generation shifting approach. Um, and ultimately the Supreme Court stayed the case. And this is where it's long, right? Because then there's a change in administration again and the Trump EPA rescinded the Clean Power Plan and they replaced it with the Affordable Clean Energy Rule or the ACE rule. And that would have limited the EPA's measures just to only the stuff that happened at each facility, um, which generally meant that, you know, although they could create more stringent emissions limitations on coal plants, they couldn't do the sort of generation shifting approach. That was the approach of the Trump administration. In turn, all of this got challenged by a different set of states. And so this eventually um, got stayed um, by the DC circuit, um, but, um, and so they, they overturned that. And then that in turn was appealed to this petition, uh, other states petitioned to the Supreme Court to hear this case. And the Supreme Court granted cert to hear this case. And it was interesting from some perspectives because at the time there was no clean power plan anymore. That had already been stayed. So um, observers were like, well, this is weird that they're granting cert on this case because there's nothing actually to appeal. There's nothing happening. Um, but the Supreme Court still said, okay, um, one, the states are affected by still being threatened to comply. And moreover, um, they wanted to address whether the Clean Power Plan went beyond what the Clean Air Act authorized. And so here's where it gets a little wonky because there's another doctrine that I hadn't mentioned before um, that's been slowly developed by the Supreme Court over time, which is what's called the Major Questions Doctrine. It first really came to be more powerful um, in this earlier case called Brown and Williamson, where um, the FDA was trying to regulate nicotine um, on the basis that it's a drug technically, right? Um, and what the Supreme Court said in Brown and Williamson was, you know, the F Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act, um, if they really meant to regulate nicotine, right? Nicotine is such a large kind of tobacco industry, such a large industry, surely the Congress would have mentioned something about that. So um, the Supreme Court in that case departed from a textualist rule and they said, okay, well, this is a major question. And so in that sense, we're not gonna defer to how the agency interprets the statute, but instead we're going to um, sort of hold that Congress has to clearly say that. They did the same thing with um, this generation shifting approach as applied to climate change um, in um, the, this case in West Virginia versus EPA. What they said was, okay, fine, carbon emissions, we've said this in EP, uh, Massachusetts versus EPA, that falls under the Clean Air Act. But if Congress wanted the EPA to take this approach of shifting the generation of power from coal-fired plants to wind and solar and natural gas, um, surely Congress would have specified that. And so they applied that doctrine and said, no, um, um, EPA can't take this generation shifting approach. The dissent said, no, there's no, um, one, the, the dissent um, contended that the major question doctrine is so amorphous that it could be applied to political ends. And moreover, um, the language of the Clean Air Act does say best system of emissions reduction and who's, and they quoted dictionary definitions of system to say, well, that can include all sorts of stuff beyond what you're saying is the individual sort of facility. So that's the overall explanation of it. Yeah, I want to drill down a little bit into this major questions doctrine because it seems kind of a big part of the case. And I want to talk about something you just mentioned, which is that it seems to be departing from a textualist approach. Yes. Uh, maybe give us a little background on textualism. And then, yeah, why is this a departure from that? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So so textualism is um, a jurisprudential approach that says that, hey, when we're interpreting a statute, we're going to look at the language of the statute, the dictionary definitions at the time. We're not going to get into what Congress intended. Um, and so if some language says, um, you know, harmful to human health, we're just going to interpret it as harmful to human health or something like that. You know, we're just going to basically use the dictionary definition. Now, this is um, contrasted with other types of approaches. For example, the intentionalist approach, which is a bit more what Justice 
former Justice Breyer, um, approached things at where they tried to glean what Congress meant to do in interpreting a statute, saying that, well, you know, we're, we should give effect as courts to what Congress meant to do. Um, the textualists say, well, you know, that's too amorphous. We should make it clear that, and if we make it clear that we're just going to interpret the dictionary definitions, then Congress will be more careful, right? They'll be more careful in using the precise wording that allows us to interpret this. Um, what's interesting is that the major questions doctrine is a departure from that. Um, and what's also especially interesting is usually the proponents of the textualist approach are um, what are considered the legal conservatives. And here the legal conservatives were um, you know, rejecting some of the dictionary definitions. In fact, the dissent complains about that, citing to a number of different definitions of um, system that appeared at the time that Congress wrote the Clean Air Act and said, well, this falls under system. Um, but um, again, in this um, decision, the West Virginia versus EPA decision, the court said, no, well, we're going to apply this major questions doctrine first as a precursor to determine whether or not to give weight to any kind of definition. You know, one of the struggles I see here is that it, it actually kind of limits Congress because Congress has trouble future-proofing their bills. If when you pass the Clean Air Act and you say something like, we want you to regulate the systems, uh, even if you kind of mean that very abstractly, the Supreme Court now says you can't you can't do that. Is that is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's, again, something the dissent um, complains about, which is that, you know, um, it seemed like Congress chose a broad wording for a reason. They could have chosen facility. They could have chosen all sorts of other more specific types of things if they meant to limit the Clean Air Act to specific facilities, but they chose system, which is a fairly broad um, term. And so to the extent that this has a longer term effect on Congress, what it means is that it'll be difficult, difficult for Congress to draft statutes that can robustly deal with upcoming situations. So now that there's this major questions doctrine in place and, and Supreme Court seems interested in, in enforcing it, uh, how would an administrative organ like VPA, how, how can they know whether they're intruding on a major question or not? That's also, again, <laughs> one thing that remains ambiguous is how to tell whether or not something counts as a major question. Um, the majority intimates that it's about how um, large an effect it'll have on the economy, et cetera. Um, but um, what that means is that um, Congress would have to somehow predict what future economies will look like, right? And that's that's very difficult. I mean, we can't as sort of, you know, if you're even looking at sort of econ professional economists can't always predict what future economies will look like. How does one expect Congress to be able to do so? And so what that ends up meaning is that Congress will have to continually some, somehow get the willpower to amend various statutes to specifically address things. And we've seen how gridlocked Congress can be. So that makes it less likely for things to be regulated. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm Nate Carlin, and today we're talking about the recent Supreme Court ruling limiting the regulatory power of federal agencies like the EPA. If you have questions or comments, you can join the conversation by giving us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. Again, that number is 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also reach out via the A Public Affair page on Facebook or on Twitter at at wart dot, sorry, at wart talk. So where does this leave the EPA now? Um, could they, I, I guess, could they still regulate coal to the point where you'd have to roll off it? I, I, I know when we talked with Lisa, she was saying that basically they already are starting to roll off coal, but could, could they still try that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of other pollutants that come out of um, coal-fired plants, for example, particulate matter. If they had much more stringent kind of emission limitations on particulate matter or even much more expensive technologies required um, to address the emissions of particulate matter, they can effectively sort of eliminate um, a lot of um, coal-fired plants from operating in an economically advantageous kind of manner. They can also be more stringent in enforcing the permits. We already heard from Lisa about how difficult it is for EPA to actually do so because of its lack of resources. Um, but you know, they could try to devote more resources to that. Um, they can also um, do a number of other things like work with states to develop um, um, other types of, um, sort of to, to help develop um, their own kinds of enforcement responses too. Um, so that's another kind of thing too, to sort of 
um, harness the um, enforcement power of state agencies as well to leverage um, the sort of more expanded things. But that's more difficult because you've seen that we have, you know, very polarized states going around. So um, there's a lot of different things that the EPA can do, but it does tie their hands from doing this generation shifting approach. Yes. Yeah, so, so is the question then a, a question of intent? Like if the EPA just happens to regulate toluene to the point where coal is no longer viable and there's a generational shift, that's fine. They just can't say we want to do a generational shift. Yeah, that's that's what a lot of commentators were saying is that they have to be very careful um, because they're going to get challenged by um, mostly the same states that challenge the clean power plan and saying, well, this is just um, some covert way of regulating carbon emissions. And so they're going to have to have a very strong administrative record to demonstrate that the health effects of whatever they're sort of substitute regulating um, are so damaging that they have to limit it at that level. Well, because it sounds like part of what you're telling me is that basically, no matter what the EPA does, a state will sue them for either going too far or not going far enough Pretty much. every time. We're, um, at that, we're at that stage now. What, what does that do to a, an organization like the FDA? I mean, does that bog them down at all? Do they seem just like, oh, we'll just refer it to legal and they move on? Um, well, that, that's all handled by the DOJ. And I can talk about this because I actually used to work for um, DOJ as an appellate attorney. And so um, um, a lot of times in these types of lawsuits, challenging regulations put forth by the EPA, um, you'll have a whole team of attorneys um, that are there to defend that, whatever the administration is. Um, it's a little bit tricky because um, administrations change in terms of um, political will, et cetera. And so um, there's a lot of times longtime staff attorneys that are there, but they have to sort of buffet these political wins. So one question that always comes up in these discussions is, what's the Supreme Court going to do next? So I'll just pass it on to you. Uh, the Supreme Court seems to be taking a run at administrative law. Uh, what do you think they're, they're going to do next? Well, they're already hearing, um, they've already received briefs um, on a Clean Water Act case um, over the summer um, confession. I worked on a team representing scientists in that one too. Um, and that one, the question is, what's the jurisdictional reach of the Clean Water Act? Um, does it go to um, different, so, so the question is whether or not the Clean Water Act was drafted such that it goes to um, waters that aren't constantly connected to surface waters of the United States. So say you have a wetland that's there and sometimes connected to a river, um, but in more seasonal kind of manner, right? In damp seasons, but not in the winter seasons. You can see why it would be helpful to regulate that. Like if you dump a bunch of pollutants into that wetland or that area of wetland, even when it's dry, um, during wet seasons, right? It's gonna wash right into the nearby river and contaminate the water. Um, and so the question of the jurisdictional reach is important in terms of the, determining the extent to which um, the EPA and the Army Corps of Engineers can use their regulatory authority um, to address this type of pollution. Um, there's, a, there's a chance that the Supreme Court um, will limit it. And there's two concerning possibilities. So one possibility is that they limit it just based on a reading of um, the Clean Water Act. So they might say, okay, well, Congress didn't draft the Clean Water Act to um, limit uh, to to reach to these sort of um, seasonal kind of wetlands. That's not quite as damaging because, you know, even though Congress is at the standstill, they still could in the future, say, amend the Clean Water Act to, you know, to reach those directly. Um, but another possibility is they might say it's beyond the reach of the Commerce Clause, which is the clause, the constitutional authority with which the EPA does many of these regulations and say, well, no, the Commerce Clause does not give the authority at all for the EPA to reach um, these kinds of intermittently connected wetlands, and they're forever in all time going to be only a matter of state authority. And so um, there's some potential there in terms of environmental cases that are coming up. Um, there might be other kinds of cases coming up, right? Like um, one of the other things that the Biden administration has been trying to do to um, reduce carbon emissions is through various sort of infrastructure kinds of support. For example, only giving grants for um, the building of federal infrastructure that use lower carbon intensive cement. There's stuff like that in their um, executive orders. And none of, none of that has come to pass so far, but you can imagine um, that sometimes, you know, some 
potential um, contractor um, might be upset that they don't get bids for particular kinds of things based on these limitations. And there might be challenges coming from that area too, in terms of other types of climate related activities um, that, um, that, the, um, that the federal government is doing. And then the last thing is a kind of weird thing. So um, there's been a number of sort of nuisance cases raised in state courts against power plants and the Supreme Court has said in the past um, that, no, that's preempted by the Clean Air Act, right? The Clean Air Act is already a system of federal of regulation. And we've already said in Massachusetts versus EPA that it covers greenhouse gases. Um, and therefore, um, you know, you can't sue these, um, you have to use sort of federal um, regulatory um, lawsuits versus sort of these state-based or even federal nuisance suits. Um, weirdly, this, West Virginia versus EPA decision might make some of these cases live again, because it's basically saying that the EPA does not have authority at least to do a generation shifting approach. So there might be um, sort of a rise of lawsuits in that area. Who knows what the Supreme Court will do about that? They might find themselves sort of trapped, but I don't know. The, the, the Supreme Court is really interesting to watch. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, another one that I, I know comes up in this administrative law stuff um, is the Chevron deference. Mm -hmm. I know that Clarence Thomas has ever written that he would like to re-examine that. Um, yes. can, can, can you give us a little overview on what the Chevron deference is? Yeah. So the Chevron deference is, um, interestingly, like um, a, a standard that was created or developed by Justice Scalia. And it's it's basically saying if the language of um, a statute is unclear, we're going to defer to the agency's interpretation um, of that statute. Um, and so, um, um, and that what that means is that if there's an am ambiguous kind of statute, unless Congress said, no, you can't possibly do this, or unless that um, statute is so incredibly, um, sort of the reading of the statute is so incredibly unreasonable, then we're going to defer um, to whatever the agency um, is doing that gives a lot of power to agencies, which some legal conservatives are upset with. And so um, that's partly where Thomas is coming from. And we haven't seen um, a direct kind of um, reversal of Chevron, but what we've seen is a sort of undercutting of Chevron over the years, basically saying, here's these areas where Chevron doesn't apply. Um, West Virginia versus EPA is one such example, because it's basically saying, we're not even gonna defer, we're not even, not gonna even look at whether or not this language of the statute is ambiguous, major questions doctrine um, um, applies, and therefore we don't even get to Chevron deference. So there's a lot of what administrative law scholars refer to um, as basically Chevron step zeros or Chevron step negative ones or whatever it takes before you get to Chevron. Yeah, I, I, I'm watching this quite closely because I, I am sort of fascinated with this push-pull. This, this Supreme Court seems really interested in federal regulatory law and like what you can how, how you can limit and I'm it. sorry, I, I missed, I was thinking, sorry, when I was thinking of Scalia, I was thinking of a different deferential opinion, which is our, this, this was written by Justice Stevens. So sorry about that. No, no worries. Oh. Um, so I, I, I struggle with the, the figure of Justice Roberts. Uh, it seems like this, the, he built his judicial philosophy on this idea of judicial restraint. And now the court has, uh, I, I guess, do, would you say that it has abandoned the idea of judicial restraint or is it still bouncing around? What um, happened it, to that? It, at least from this term, it seems like this court has determined that it has the votes to do things that it's wanted to do for a while. And so um, um, I'm not seeing much in the way of judicial restraint um, coming from this case. For example, um, as I mentioned, one of the weird things about the West Virginia versus EPA case is that there's not actually any regulation around. Um, the Biden administration, the, the clean power plan already got stayed. The Biden administration hadn't promulgated anything. They said in statements to the court that um, they weren't going to. And the court still said that the states had standing to raise this case, which is unusual because standing is a doctrine that says that has to be a live case in controversy. Um, and so this, um, um, it seems like they're abandoning a lot of their commitments in other kinds of areas just to get certain kinds of statements through. Yeah, from from a, uh, a layperson perspective, it, it reads like the Supreme Court is just sort of being ideological and, and doing whatever they want. Uh, I guess, why are we so clinging to some of these illusions of, of sort of legal theory when it seems arbitrary? 
I, I think that that's a question that a majority of our population is asking right now, right? The um, the um, public's faith, I think according to, I think the last Pew um, study is in the Supreme Court has dropped precipitously. And that was even, um, had been dropping already uh, before the Dodd opinion was leaked. And so I think a lot of people are asking that exact question. Uh, is there a recourse? I mean, like, are, is, there, is there any sense that they might adjust ship when they sort of realize that people are, are wondering what happened to some of their legal theories? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's an unusual time. Um, we've already seen some concern expressed by justices that they're being protested, but that doesn't seem to be affecting how they're um, planning on approaching things. If anything, it might make them more um, steadfast in taking their approaches. So I don't know. All right. Well, do um, you have anything else you want to add about this case? Anything interesting that, that jumps out at you? No. Well, one thing I did want to add is that it's not entirely hopeless. So, um, for example, in like basically, this case is kind of about propping up a technology that is soon to be obsolete, right? Um, for example, in Wisconsin, um, in um, let's see, in 1997, um, coal generated. 82% of our electricity net generation. Um, in 2020, it dropped down to 39%. Um, companies are already seeing this um, as a not viable kind of long-term energy um, source. And you're already seeing companies that are not lefty by any means, like Walmart pressuring, um, for example, Texas to move to a more renewable kind of grid because they're concerned about situations like um, the um, the Ukrainian conflict, right, um, where energy sources might not be so available. And so the, there's already, I think, um, a long-term economic shift, especially to natural gas, but to renewables, as these are seen to be more stable sources of energy. Yeah, yeah. like you said, it seems like an odd sort of judicial flex on something that, that's already happening. Why did the Supreme Court pick <laughs> this up? <laughs> I think they just want to limit agency authority. And, yeah. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much to our guests, Lisa Song and Steph Tai, to our producer, Rochelle, and to Summer for Engineering. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. And I'm Nate Carlin. You've been listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison. Next up is Mel and Floyd. Have a great weekend. <laughs> Six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight. Straight from the base, deep down, no precision. High crime treason, we broadcast in sedition. Like the Wall Street morning, afternoon edition. Commandeering airwaves from unknown positions. Live and direct, we come and never pre-recorded. With information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and listen and supported. Live and direct, we come and never pre-recorded. With information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. Woo, woo.